preaching of God's Word is from Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. And so here, something of a lengthier passage, we'll focus on a few parts of it in our series on conversion. Acts chapter 8, 9 through 24. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, crying out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the, hand, of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. These words making up the substance of our consideration this afternoon. Well, in our series, though it's been short so far, we've seen that conversion is the call and demand of God. He calls upon people to be converted. And we saw that that means to turn from what we were, what we are in our sin, to God. So fundamentally, converting is about turning to the Lord. It is intimately, of course, related with repentance. But as we've stated, and as we'll see more fully as the Lord gives us opportunity, the preeminent and first act of a converted soul is that it trusts in Jesus Christ. We've seen that conversion requires that effectual and saving grace that only God provides. So we take a moment before going further into our series to consider a warning that we may better understand what true conversion is by seeing what it is not. Here's Simon, known as Simon the Sorcerer. And that was so because, as the text tells us, he, verse 9, used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. And so he was, as we would say, um, one who had engaged in witchcraft, and by the power of demons and the permission even of God, he was given some degree of wondrous signs and works, which astounded the people, such that, verse 10, they said, this man is the great power of God. What an expression that is. At the very least, it's ascribing to him divine instrumentality. But the words admit as well as something more intimately associated with God than just an instrument and is even ascribing some degree of divinity to him as well. Well, this is, of course, open and obvious sin. But you'll notice that what happens in the text is that for a long time he bewitched them with sorceries so that they had regard to him. 
Some have made the claim that there were um, monuments erected to his honor. Whatever the case, here comes the simplicity, the preaching of Christ, Philip. And the kingdom of God comes, and in the name of Jesus Christ, they believe the preaching, are baptized, both men and women, and they turn from this way. Well, what's noted is that Simon himself, notice the language, verse 13, believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And so what's being stated here, to one extent or another, is that Simon cast off his engagement with the witchcraft and sorceries. And as he continued with Philip, he's giving outward display of being a disciple. And in fact, there's the import here of an idea that he continued for a season with Philip. And so there was a a length of duration wherein Simon the sorcerer is now Simon a disciple and is learning and is continuing with this one and with the others. And yet, though this is a true outward change, he's no longer practicing these dark, demonic arts. Yet what we see is, it is but a superficial change. If you and I had been present there, we would, with good reason, have in charity have said, Simon has been converted. And yet notice, as the text shows us, then John and Peter come, and it is that through them the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given, peculiar to this season of the church. And Simon sees this. Simon, who was the sorcerer and now the disciple. What is it he says? He says, offering the money, verse 18, give me also this power that as he says, on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Peter sees through all of this and he condemns both the money offered and pronounces a judgment against Simon, saying, as he says in verse 21, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So Simon sorcerer, who is now Simon the disciple, is still Simon the unconverted. See that point? Your heart is not right. And he goes further to say, I perceive, I see that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. One comments on this with, a reverent, or with an important insight, it doesn't say that the gall of bitterness is still in him, which is true of Christians. There's something still in us of sin, but rather Simon is still in, bound by this sin. So the Christian, of course, Romans 6, 7, and 8, Galatians as well, and other places, wrestles with remaining sin in him. But he is no longer in sin. He's no longer bound by and enslaved to it, though he's wrestling with it. But Peter sees in this Simon, the former sorcerer, the present disciple, that he is still unconverted. You are still in the gall of bitterness. And you are still in the bond of iniquity. We take this up because we're about to take up matters of faith and repentance and other aspects of conversion. And it's helpful for us to have this in our mind as we think about those true teachings. Because notice what's said of Simon. It says he believed. And there is outward display of some degree of repentance. He's no longer casting spells and doing works And yet what we see is the outward change is only that. An outward change. His heart was still bound 
to the essence of his rebellion. And what was that? Well, it was, think of what was said of him. This man is the great power of God. Notice what's said in verse 9. It is Simon who was giving out that himself was some great one. And now he sees the miraculous work of the apostles. And what does he want? He wants that power. What has not been changed? Simon's heart. He still wanted to give himself out as one great one. He didn't want to do it any longer in what was evidently wicked and wrong through sorcery and these wicked acts. He wanted it now in a way that was commended by God, but not for the glory of God, still for the glory of Himself. So we see in this passage that one can do much outwardly as far as changes are considered. One can even acknowledge the truth through a type of faith of acknowledging that yes, Christ is the Savior. Yes, God is triune. Yes, I acknowledge and in that sense believe these things to be so and yet not be converted. Not have true and saving faith and not truly repent. In other words, though there is the appearance of repentance, the root of it had not repented. Children, think of it this way for a moment. If you were to go to a garden and you were to be told of your parents, you know, you need to pull out the weeds, okay? Say, okay, well, show me what a weed is. You know, is this a weed? No, that has this pretty flower on it. Is this? No, it doesn't have a flower yet, but it will. And see these things. These are weeds. Say, okay, well, maybe you have some skill and you would, as it were, make a craft that looks like a blossom and then staple it to a weed. To the untrained eye from a distance, it looks like a flower now. It looks like it belongs. But it's only in an appearance. It's not in the reality. Upon further inspection, it's easy to discern that this is a counterfeit. We can go further. There are great industries of wickedness that are founded on counterfeit things. Counterfeit goods and products, counterfeit money, and so on. And the skill in doing so is tremendously advanced. So it takes hours of training, of specialized observation to detect what is a counterfeit bill versus a legitimate one. What is a counterfeit uh, artifact versus a, a legitimate one. But with enough training, people can detect that which is true and genuine versus that which is fake and counterfeit. Well, the same is true with reference to conversion. There are things from a distance that may look, well, it seems to be the case that this is the genuine article, but upon closer inspection, all of a sudden it becomes clear. Or maybe it doesn't become clear to all, but with greater skill and advanced training, it can become plain to those who discern the same. So our desire by God's grace is to consider what is it about Simon that makes him appear converted, but is not. So we'll look at three things as we consider this. The first is that we ought to acknowledge that the unconverted can change dramatically in outward ways. Not just in subtle ways, but dramatic ways. So here is a man, let's understand this, who is in league with Satan openly, clearly, and quite obviously. He is a sorcerer. He had given himself to the practice of forbidden and wicked actions which relied upon the gifts that would be provided him by demons. There are things in our culture that make us groan. There are other things that make us so soberly aware that our very core is troubled. There are places we can go, for instance, and we can see satanic rituals have been practiced there, and it's overwhelming. There are things in Mexico about certain forms 
of worshiping the so-called angel of death that is overwhelming. Open idolatry. You can go to places just here in the St. Louis metropolitan area and Cahokia mounds and you'll see these great mounds and realize, understand this, that pagan arts were practiced there. You can go into Mexico and you can see the places of the Mayans and the Aztecs and realize pagan arts were practiced there. You can stand and be where humans were sacrificed out of worshiping false gods. Those kinds of things trouble us to our core. And that's proper. Some people today say, well, all sin sin. It's not true. All sin is worthy of God's wrath and curse in this life and in the life to come. That's true. But some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And such open rebellion and rejection of God is utterly unstomachable and ought to be so for us. We can look with pity and sadness when a child is caught in lies and realize that sin is worthy of damnation in the child. But when we see men in league with such explicit ways to Satan, though there is a type of pity, there is a more abhorrent repulsion by the nature and gravity of the offense committed. Simon is in that latter sort of sin. He is engaged in open defilement and wickedness contrary to God. He is receiving praise which is less than what Herod received and was struck down. Do you remember? Herod spoke, and the crowd said, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And because he didn't give glory to God, he was struck by God, eaten of worms, and condemned. Here's a man who for a long time is doing much more than Herod did. His sin was longer, of greater duration, and of greater heinousness in itself. And yet understand this, he leaves it behind. He stops it. Why? Well, the preaching of Simon, or of Philip, comes. Men are converted. Men profess faith, are baptized. And Simon is one who is said to have believed, also was baptized. And this language, which is common in the book of Acts, continued in. It's already been open to us in the book of Acts, if you were to read earlier in chapters 2 and 3, that They continued in the disciples' teaching. And that's what Simon's doing. So Simon the wicked sorcerer is now Simon the disciple. He's no longer engaged in sorcery. He's no longer engaged in this open rebellion against God. And yet, he is still possessive of a heart that is not right in the sight of God. Verse 21. And he is still one who is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. How is that possible? Simply put, it's this. Outward displays of sin, to put them off, requires no ounce of saving grace. Zero. You can be the filthiest mouth, and you, by simple check of conscience, can say, I'm never going to say another word again that is profane. You can be involved in homosexuality, and you can see the open defilement of it and say, what in the world am I doing? And be done with it and have no ounce of saving grace. You can be involved in drunkenness and say, I'm ruining my life. I'm ruining my wealth. I'm ruining my family. My marriage is broken. All of this is shattered. And I'm never going to drink another drop unto drunkenness again and be sober and yet still be dead in sin. Though we know men and women who have been helped by various enterprising Uh, men and women, to bring them out of drug addiction, to bring them out of drunkenness and abuse. Yet we also know plenty who, though they are free now from those more egregious sins, are as proud and self-reliant now, if not more, than they were when they were abusing these chemicals in ways that were not intended. And that is what's going on in Simon's life. His outward side had been cleaned up. Think of this. Were the Pharisees outwardly good or were they outwardly and notably evil? 
Christ says, you're like whited sepulchers or like men who clean the outside of the cup and platter. And yet, he says, they were still full of dead men's bones. So mark it down as an important feature of understanding the truth between counterfeit and true conversion. Mere outward change is not a necessary sign of conversion. Now, we need to add in clarity, and we'll see this, outward change will display itself when one's converted. But outward change of itself is no sure mark. This is why when someone gets convicted and unconverted, they often speak of all the things they're now going to do. And so they get convicted and they say, oh no, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to be sure to go to church. I'm going to sing the Psalms more. I'm going to memorize more Scripture. I'm going to do all of these things. And unbeknownst to them, they've shifted from a more egregious form of self-reliance onto a more refined and religiously acceptable form, which is no mark of sure saving grace. Ought they to read the Bible more? Certainly. Ought they to memorize Scripture? 100%. Ought they to be in church every time the doors are open? Zero doubt at all. But if it is done in merely one's own desire to be able to do what is right, it is a shifting from a more scandalous form of self-righteousness outwardly to a more religiously acceptable form of self-righteousness, which is in the sight of God, more damnable. Because it perverts the means of grace, which are meant to tell us of Christ and draw us to Christ, and men use those, as it were, to make themselves right. The unconverted can change dramatically outwardly And yet the root of the matter is unchanged altogether. Children were fascinated as young people and some of us as adults at the animal kingdom. And there are some creatures who can change their appearance. So you're familiar with chameleons. And they can change the color. And certain fish can do this and other animals as well. So they blend in with their appearance. And it's a striking and fascinating a reality to observe. And so you've seen perhaps on video or you've gone to the zoo or other displays and you see people take, for instance, this chameleon that's in this green area and switches them to a flower that's red. And before your very eyes, that creature turns into that perfect color and hue of red that is now before you. Once it was green, now it's red. But has the actual thing changed? It's still a chameleon. It looks differently. It blends in with different surroundings now, but it's still a chameleon. And the same is true in the unconverted, self-reliant, self-righteous. You may take them out of sorcery, plant them in the church, and they may cast off the sorcery. You can do this with all sorts of sins. You can take them out of the tavern where they abuse alcohol and place them within the church. You can take them out of the idolatry of sports on the Sabbath and place them in the church and they can cut all of those things off. And yet, if they are unchanged from the heart, it's just the outward circumstantial appearance that's changed and not the reality of their soul. That's what's gone on with Simon. But notice further, as we survey this counterfeit, it's not only that they can change dramatically outwardly, it's that they can continue in that dramatic change indefinitely. Now, that's not the case with Simon, as far as we know. We don't have much more noted of Simon after our passage. We don't know precisely how long it was between when he believed in this way and was baptized. But we do notice that as is written, that he continued with Philip. And such time passed that he was beholding the miracles, plural, and signs, plural, which were done. And notice it's time enough for word to go to Jerusalem and they hear the same and they formally send Peter and John. And they come and pray. And so, at least a period of days, 
more likely a period of weeks if not months have passed. And no one is any the wiser that Simon who has cast off the dark arts is still dark in heart. No one knows that. Simon doesn't seem to know it. Philip doesn't seem to know it. No one seems to know it. If you had seen Simon, you would have seen one whom the church today would have pasted on internet pages and on billboards and said, come here, what has been done. But unbeknownst to an unperceiving group, the heart of Simon, though painted over and gilded, was still profusely wrecked by the unconverted heart that pervaded his being. He continued with Philip, which implies at the very least he was being taught by Philip. He was in Philip's presence. He was in the fellowship of the church. And yet, he was unconverted. Now, we can say, of course, it's better to cast off such egregious sins than to continue in them, but it is not saving to do so. Moreover, we note that the church is no perfect judge of matters in this life regarding things of the invisible church. So theologically, as the Bible justifies, we can say the church can be considered in its outward manifestation, what's visible to men, and yet there is the truth of God being able to discern in the visible manifestation of the professing church and its children who it is that is truly believing. You and I don't have that ability. We are only left to the credible profession of faith and the life free of scandal. But notice, 1 John tells us that there are those who went out from us. And so as John is dealing with these things, he's talking about the Antichrist which shall come. And he says in verse 19, chapter 2, they, those who are precursors to, and in that sense, Antichrist, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. One thing we can say is this. John the Apostle is saying that even he, apart from the Lord's miraculous provision of understanding, would not be able to demarcate the difference between an unconverted, outwardly professing, free of scandal member of the church versus a converted member who is confessing and free of scandal in the church. The way that that became apparent is they went out from the church. They apostatized and turned from the Lord. What that means is it is right and necessary for a number of things to take place. The church needs to be aware of this. That just because one is outwardly okay, just because one is willing to come to church, just because one is professing the truth, confessing the truth, is not the same as saying that one is truly, soundly, graciously converted. This is why, for instance, our Reformed forefathers, Calvin included, though he stood for the outward reformation of the church, as you read his sermons, he's calling upon his hearers to repent and believe the Gospel. Now think of that. These are men, women, and children who are in church literally every day of the week. These were people who had some of the best preaching, the most faithful expounding of Scripture, who had worship in its purity and all these things, who withstood the Roman Antichrist in his strength of that season. And they were numbered among this faithful congregation in St. Peter's in Geneva. And yet, Calvin understood his Bible. And he realized that there would be unconverted people in the pew, as we say. And so his preaching was in that way discriminating. Here is what true believers are, love, do, think. Here is what unconverted people love, think, do, feel. And so his followers would continue the same to our own day. But really, this isn't Calvinism. This is biblical truth. It's founded upon the biblical model that in the assembly of a professing people, there may be, can be, 
and likely are those who are deceived or outrightly hypocrites. There's not, as it were, a length of time that is guaranteed or must be continued on, but Simon continues for a season. He's orthodox so far as we can discern. He is outwardly free now of scandal so far as we can discern, and yet he is dead as dead can be spiritually. What's the point of this? Just because your name is on the roll of a faithful church for many years is no sure sign that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. This is a sobering thought that is contrary to the culture in which we live. Because the culture in which we live, even in the Reformed world, is filled with presumption. Well, not as bad as someone is not just a sin of churchless men and women. It is a sin of the hypocrite in the church. I'm not as bad as those who sing the hymns that are uninspired. I'm not as bad as those who corrupt the doctrine that God has given in His Word. I'm not as bad as... And fundamentally, our heart betrays itself as relying upon our own works instead of Christ. And that's what Peter discerns and recognizes. Notice, he has no criticism to Simon for his profession of faith or for his baptism or for his continuing with Philip. What he sees is, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Notice that language? In the sight of whom? Of God. It may be right in our sight, It may be right in Philip's sight. If we hadn't heard you ask this, it would have remained right in our sight. But now I discern that in the sight of God, your heart is not right. That's something that we need to deal with. We need to entertain the question, whatever my wife or husband, whatever my children or parents, whatever my pastor, elders, session, presbytery, whatever men think, Here's the question I have to ask. How is my heart in the sight of God? Is my heart right in God's sight? It does no good to say, well, my pastor says things are encouraging. It does no good to say, well, my wife says, you know, there's been a lot of change. It does no good for a husband to say, you know what, don't worry yourself. Everything's okay. It does no good for an elder or a pastor or anyone else simply to observe outward change and say, this is a sure sign of conversion because the very same thing would have been said of Simon and yet his heart was dead in the sight of God and he was without salvation. So it takes us away from the theater of mere appearance and makes us assess the heart, which is, as the Scripture says, deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Do you know, as soon as you try to get your hand on a fish, your hand realizes the contest is not in your favor. It has natural sort of fluids and slime that make it difficult to grab. It wiggles in ways you don't expect. And it's hard to get a handle on. And that's if you have the luxury of having it out of water. It is well nigh impossible to actually grip a fish with your bare hand in water. Not impossible fully, but quite difficult. What's more difficult is for anyone here to get a handle on his own heart. What is required is the discerning of the Spirit of God to open our eyes. This is why the psalmist says, Search me, O Lord. And what does he say? See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Simon was given no comfort that he had cast off his sorcery. He was given no comfort that he professed the faith. He was given no comfort that he was baptized. He was given no comfort that he was continuing with the disciples because evidence now sprung up that his heart was not right with God. 
see, it's not about an outward change, nor is it about duration and maintaining. It is about a radical change in the very depths of one's soul from one who despised God and relied on self to one that now trusts God and casts off self. And notice what is found out. So we've seen unconverted can change dramatically outwardly. They can continue and maintain in that outward change for a season. But here's what the unconverted cannot change. The unconverted cannot change his heart. He may dress it up. He may make it look a little bit different in the eyes of others, but he can't actually change it. So what's going on with Simon? Well, as we noted in the earlier portion, Simon was giving out that himself was some great one, verse 9. And now what is it that Simon wants? Verse 19, Give me also this power, notice this language, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. What's Simon still wanting? He's wanting to give himself out as some great one. Oh, affiliated with the true God now. Oh yes, in league with the one and holy and omnipotent God. But he still wants this ability that when he does it, it happens. Now, those of you who are students of church history will realize that there is a specific sin that is noted as simony. And simony is the sin whereby one seeks to purchase office in the church. And you can see what's going on here. Simon is effectively saying, make me an apostle and here's the money for it. This is a wicked slap in the face to God as if our money could purchase so noble a thing, and yet it's countenanced and was formally accepted. Who knows if it's still accepted in the Roman Catholic Church where people could purchase bishoprics and priesthood and all of these things if they paid enough money to receive that office. It is a wicked sin. But here's the point. Why is it so wicked? Because the man is trying to attain to this honor. How? By his own works. Now, it's in a specific fashion. But if he could attain that by his price, if he could attain that by his works, then he is a cause and is a recipient of the praise. Here's the point. What's so wrong with Simon? Someone says, well, let's have mercy on Simon. You know, he was a a wizard, a a sorcerer. Now he's not. You know, isn't that good enough? No. It's not good enough because there's been no real change. Outward dressings, yes, but no real change. Think of it this way, children. There are buildings where you look and you say, you know, it's dilapidated cracks and so on and all of these things and the roof's caving in and and so on. So what are we going to do? Well, we could renovate it truly, you know, rip out the walls and put in new beams and, and get all of these things done rightly. The foundation in St. Louis, of course, where there are basements, there are cracks. And so the cracks need attention and uh, all of these things. But you can also do these attempted cover-ups. And so you can get plaster and sort of plaster the cracks and then paint it really well. You can get plaster and plaster the cracks in the foundation and paint over it so you can sell the house. No one knows the difference and it's all well and good. Apart from this fact, there's been no substantial change. The problem still exists. It appears okay to the eye that's looking at it at the surface, but if you just wipe away that little remnant of paint, what's there but a cover-up? And still as well, the great crack that is detrimental to the structure. Think of it this way. On a dry day, of course, no one would know the difference if a hole in the wall was covered up with cardboard and then painted over with appropriate looking and matching paint. So soon as the rain comes, everyone will know that it was just a cover-up. That's what has happened to Simon. He covered up his sin. Did so in religious ways. But so soon 
as his heart is given an opportunity to display itself, he says, I want that honor. Now, of course, not everyone's sin is Simon's sin. In fact, in this room, I would be surprised if there's anyone who has explicitly been involved in so engrossed a sin as sorcery as was Simon. And yet, it doesn't take the magnitude and the type of Simon's sin to be of the same in essence of what was going on. Someone could be proud and their pride displayed itself in their boastful speech. And they get pricked in their conscience. Say, well, I can't be that way anymore. And so what do they do? They stop off boasting in the sight of others. But if you listen to their prayers, their prayers are full of me, my, and I. And so their pride has transformed appearance into a more religious and a religiously acceptable way. The unconverted can change much, dramatically change much, but they can radically change nothing. What's the difference? Radical gets to the root. Go back to this idea of the weeding of a garden. All of us know the frustration of certain weeds, which as soon as you pull on them, they snap just at the surface and the root remains there. And all of us with frustration realize, I either have to dig up the thing that's left or I have to wait because it's going to spring up again and it's going to show itself there. Well, the idea of radical is root. It gets to the roots. Remember what John the Baptist said? The axe is laid to what? To the branches? To the trunk? No, to the roots. That's where the change must be found. In the root of the matter, the radix, the radical feature of man. That's the heart. It's not that he must merely be changed in his tongue, in his hands, in his eyes, in his ears. He must be changed from the heart. And that's what no man can do of himself. Where does this leave us then? Peter says, as is recorded, Perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Before that though, he says, repent. Repent is not the same, but it's a part of conversion. Isn't that interesting? He's calling upon Simon to be converted. He's saying your need and having cast off these magical arts, these sorceries, is still that you be converted. Repent of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven. It may be that everyone in this room is truly converted. Praise God if that's so. It may be that there are those here who are received as converted that aren't. And they're starting to get a whisper in their ear and a sense in their mind and a feeling in their heart. I've got a problem. I, though having outwardly changed, the things that I look at are not the same. The things that I listen to are not the same. The things that I speak of are not the same. The things I put my hands to are not the same in outward ways. But oh, this heart is still filled with self. That's Simon. The heart was not turned to God. The heart was not relying upon God. The heart was not coming under God and receiving His promise. The heart was using religion to make of Himself still as some great one. What was Simon's need? It wasn't that he needed to be baptized again. Isn't that interesting? Peter doesn't say repent and be baptized again. Baptism is only once to be administered. But it is that Simon needs to be converted. He had need to turn unto the Lord, which brings us back to what we considered last week and what we'll consider in weeks to come. Simon's fundamental need was to cast off all hope of himself and embrace what Christ is as the Savior of sinners. And let me close with this as the final appeal. If you discover yourself in no difference to Simon 
as far as essence goes. Not in the same sins that Simon was. But when you get down to it, the changes you've undertaken are ultimately within your power and have nothing that reaches to the heart. What should you do? Well, the first thing you need to come to terms with is you are in, as Peter says to Simon, the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's where you are. And this needs to sober you to make you realize if it is not that God saves me, I am hopeless. My condition is beyond anything that I can do. There's nothing that I can do enough of that will get me there. In fact, I'm partly bound up in this because I thought in this wicked, perverted way that using true religion, I could attain to all of these things. First thing to come to terms with is that you have no hope in any work whatsoever of your own. None. Your prayers will never be fervent enough. They will never be multiplied enough. Your Bible reading will never be complete enough. Your Sabbath observance will never be perfect enough. Nothing you do can ever draw you to attain to this dramatic, and more than that, radical change that must grip and transform your heart. So you say, well, where does that leave me? It leaves you, and feel the weight of this, at the mercy of God. Paul says it in Romans 9, it's not to him that wills or runs, but to him who has mercy. And your fundamental starting point must be this, if God doesn't save me, I will never be saved. My parents can weep, and they can weep for years on end. My pastor can pray and visit and speak and teach. Books can be read. And all of these things must and ought to be done. But if God does not have mercy, I'm left to answer for my sins. We ought not to skip past that point too quickly. Because it makes us sensible to our utter need for God's grace. But then the second thing comes in. We ought to pray that God would forgive us. And think for a moment what great encouragement we have to take that petition up. But as we take it up, we have to be thoughtful of this. We don't take it up as a work to merit from God. Now I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray these words. I'm going to pray this earnestly. I'm going to pray all these things. But we take it up as a casting of ourselves upon His grace in Christ. I look away from myself in looking to Christ. I don't look and say, look how I'm doing all of these right things. I look to Christ and I say, you save me. Think of Peter when he was sinking in the water. Lord, save me. And it's Christ who stooped down and grabbed Peter and raised him up out of the water and brought him to the boat. That's faith. I can't save myself. My prayers can't save me. My reading can't save me. My worship can't save me. Jesus Christ, You alone can save me. Only You can transform my heart. Only You can turn me, not just outwardly, but inwardly to You. And if You don't do that, I perish. There's not much more said. But maybe it is that Simon learned this lesson he was refusing his own works and said, pray ye to the Lord for me. Is it not right to go to others and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray that God would convert me? Isn't it striking that when one comes under conviction, they want to shut down and not share anything with anyone else? That's Satan and pride combined together. And when once one is convicted of sin and saying, I may be damned, I may be going to hell. It is most right and most necessary to tell anyone who is worthy of such announcement, I am concerned for my soul. And if someone comes to you in that condition, do not give them the disservice of saying it's okay, 
don't worry. You hinder their soul instead of helping their soul. You need to tell them it is right for you to be alarmed because if God doesn't save you, you are damned. There's no prayer I can give you. There's no counsel I can give you that will issue forth in your salvation unless God saves you. That needs to be our knee-jerk reaction to someone saying, I'm concerned. We should say to them, you have every right to be concerned. You ought to be concerned. And then in confirming that concern, we must teach them and implore them to rely upon nothing they do and to cry out to the Lord that He would save them. Yes, there will be difficulties and counsel that's needed and how do I know if I'm crying out and what should I do? But if we keep those two things front and center, we will be helping to shepherd souls to Christ. There's nothing you can do, but you must cry out. You must look away from yourself. You must look to the Lord and say, Save me! Save me! Cast yourself upon Him! And what a blessing it is as we've heard previous times that the Lord is willing to grant repentance. Though we have a week between us as the Lord gives us life, it is our hope in the future to look more fully at the exercise of faith and then repentance and true conversion. And as we prepare for that, let us be sure to give thanks if we find ourselves deploring our own works and prayers and sighings and tears and pleadings and resting only in Christ. Because if you rest in Christ, that is true conversion. Simon was resting in himself. Those who are converted rest in Christ. And if you've rested in Christ and are resting in Christ, what you have is the grace of God manifested, having brought you from death to life. And your changes may not be as dramatic as Simon's were, but the change will have been more radical because your heart has been changed to rely not upon yourself, but upon Christ. And if that's the case, you have cause to rejoice and give glory to God for His mercy. Would you stand with me for prayer?